Surveys show that at some point in life, almost every human being cries out to God or whatever concept they have of a force or a being greater than themselves. So the topic this morning, when we get to a couple of verses in 1 John chapter 5, is going to be about prayer. So this is a little preliminary on prayer before we get there. The point is everybody prays, some more than others. But at some point in most people's lives, in fact, almost everyone, I would argue, we pray. What do you pray for? Who do you pray for? How do you pray? I'm talking to you specifically now, and I want you to be thinking about those things. What causes you to pray more at times than at other times? Jesus encouraged us to pray a lot. And he prayed a lot while he was here on earth. Even though he was God the Son, he was interceding a lot in talking to his heavenly father, asking for things, praying for people. We'll see that in a few minutes. He even told a story one time to illustrate the importance of what I would call persistence in prayer. So even before we get to my text this morning, let's hear that story as a setup. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and Jesus tells his disciples a parable or a story to show them they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. What he's saying is is this guy was incredibly arrogant. He didn't care about anybody other than himself. He didn't care what you thought about him. He wasn't bound to peer pressure, but he also wasn't concerned about what God thought about him. There was a widow in the town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. We don't know the details, but someone was taking advantage of this woman. Widows in that day and time would certainly almost always have been among the poor, unless she was a wealthy widow whose children cared for her. She would have been a poor person, and so she's seeking justice. There's kind of a secondary theme here because the word justice appears four times. The word unjust appears one time or maybe two times, and and so that's kind of a secondary theme about justice for the poor, but she's seeking justice for herself in some way, but he refuses for a while, but finally he says to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice, there's the word again, so she won't eventually wear me out with all her keeping on coming in here asking for justice. And the Lord said, listen to what this unjust judge says. And will not God, contrasting himself to the unjust judge, he's the just judge, bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Will he put them off forever is really the question. I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly, now quickly is a different term in God's economy maybe than in my economy or yours. However, when the Son of Man comes, all of a sudden there's this random thought. He asks this kind of crazy question out of nowhere. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, he's talking about his return, will he find faith on the earth? So faith has something to do with persistent prayer. Persistence is related to faith. Another way of saying this is, a life of faith is a life of persistent prayer. Speaking of faith, uh, the New Testament writers and the historians and Jesus himself said that our faith 
has something to do with whether our prayers are answered, at least sometimes. So the question begs itself, what is faith? And how do we get more of faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see with our physical eyes. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say five verses later in Hebrews 11.6, without some degree of faith, it's impossible, first of all, to please God. We must start, he says, with a belief that God exists. Okay, that's kind of a duh. If we're going to come to God in prayer, we've got to believe he exists. We're not just talking to the air. And that he hears our prayers. That requires a little more faith. And finally, if he is a God that rewards those who diligently or persistently pursue him. That implies some effort and discipline and hard work on our part. It appears that faith, even though, as it says in Ephesians 2.8, it's a gift from God. I think that refers to saving faith. It is also something that we can cause to help grow in and of ourselves. Like working out to get in physical shape to grow our muscles. We have a part to play in building our own faith. So with those preliminary thoughts in mind about prayer and faith, Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to talk about one particular type of prayer, intercession is what we're going to call it, intercession for other people, other brothers and sisters in Christ, and for those who are not yet come to faith. And I'm going to start by revisiting two verses from last week that introduced the topic of prayer into John's little letter written to these first century churches by an old man that's about 85 to 90 years old, writing from his life experience under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this about prayer. This is the confidence, verse 14 is where I'm starting. This is the confidence or the faith we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he talked about that last week a little, that's not really a problem today, you'll see in just a few minutes. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Wow, that's a lot of faith. You know what? He's not the only one that said that. Jesus said this more than one time. If anyone sees his brother, now he's going to transition. He's going to talk about a specific type of prayer that he's encouraging those Christians in the first century. And today he's encouraging you and I to engage in called intercessory prayer. If we see a brother committing a sin, actually in the Greek that just means sin, it's not a specific sin, that does not lead to death, more on that in just a few minutes, he should pray and God will give him life. He's talking about life in general, eternal life, spiritual life in the here and now. So it's a command, first of all, to pray for our brothers and sisters who are trapped in bondage to specific sin patterns in their lives, addiction and other issues, maybe anger issues, maybe jealousy, maybe pride, maybe materialism, stuff addiction. Name the sin. There's people all around us, including ourselves, who need prayer for breaking the bondage or the chains the enemy may have in some area of our life. That's what he's saying. That's the primary point. The primary point is not what is a sin or sins that lead to death? 
but I know I'll have to address that in just a few minutes. Then he goes on to say, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying we should about that. And then he goes back to the main point. All wrongdoing is sin. It's an offense against God. We've talked about that before. And there is sin that does not need lead to death. What he's saying is there's plenty of sins you can pray about. Okay, what in the world does all that mean? Let's talk about the phrase asking or praying according to his will. The reason that doesn't concern us much in this context is this. I'll go New Testament first, then Old Testament. Second Peter 3, nine. God does not want anyone to perish, Peter's trying to communicate there, but for everyone to come to repentance or repent. That's the will of God. So when we're praying for our brother and sister to be delivered from bondage to sin, we're praying within the will of God. And then the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32, if you want to write those down and check them out later, God says this to Ezekiel when he's about to bring harsh judgment. He said, I take no pleasure, Ezekiel, I take no pleasure, Jim, in the death of anyone than judging the wicked. Rather, it's my desire that they should repent and live. The book of Jonah. There's another Old Testament story about the same principle. God is trying to get a very wicked and depraved Assyrian culture to repent. And he reveals to us in this story by contrasting his love for the sinner to Jonah's lack of love for the sinner his heart, and his ethos. So when we pray, and we're praying for someone to be delivered from sin patterns, we're praying within the will of God. The primary point, again, that John is trying to communicate is that we should get engaged in what I'm going to call, and I don't think it's a stretch, more on it in a minute, spiritual warfare through prayers of intercession. His major point is not what specific sin or sins lead to physical or spiritual death. Otherwise, he would have spelled it out for us. However, I'll digress and talk about that just for a few minutes. The commentators admit they don't fully understand, and I certainly don't, what John is referring to here when he says the sin are, are sins that lead to death. Again, the Greek does not say a sin, it just says sin. The first question is whether he's talking about spiritual death that means eternal separation from God, or physical death, or both. If he's talking about spiritual death, he may be referring contextually to the people he's warning the church against, one of the reasons he wrote the letter. Remember, the people that had once been among them, members of the church, professed Christ, been baptized, that have now left and are denying their faith, and they're saying that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh or, or Jesus wasn't God or, or something heretical. And he may be saying, if you don't have to pray for those people. I don't think that's what he's saying, but it's certainly a possibility. Here's a more likely possibility. He's talking about Christians that have already been confronted over and over and over about a specific immoral lifestyle. They refuse to repent. And the church has given them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That sounds terrible and horrible. More on that in just a second. I'll give you an example from the Corinthian church in just a minute. And he's maybe saying, you don't have to pray for them if you've already given them over. 
1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. I'm not going there. Most of you know the story. Look it up later. Paul is really hot at the Corinthian church for a number of things. One of them is that there's someone in their congregation who's living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul said, even the Romans and the pagans know that's not right. And you're condoning it. Cast him out, give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But then he says an incredibly graceful thing. He really believes God can save his soul in spite of the destruction of his body. Now, I don't fully understand all that either. But that could be what he's talking about here. Let me weigh in. Here's my advice. Based on other passages of Scripture, other stories from Scripture, and my own personal life experience, be very careful about writing anyone off spiritually, not praying for them. Peter spent three years with Jesus, three years, walked on water with him, and then turned around and denied three times that he even knew him, cursed one time when he did it, yet God restored him and used him powerfully in the first century church as a leader. Paul, he knew those hundreds of Old Testament passages he had them memorized, folks. He was an incredibly high intellect. He'd been educated by some of the leading scholars of his day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He knew what Isaiah 53 said about a suffering servant. He knew what Psalm 22 said. He knew Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He knew all that stuff. And yet, he didn't get it that Jesus was the Messiah. And he persecuted Christians and even condoned the killing of Christians. And yet God used him and brought him to faith and used him to launch a church planting movement that changed the course of Western civilization. Others, here's my favorite. A guy hanging on a cross dying beside a dying Messiah bantering back and forth with another career criminal on the other side. And he says to the other career criminal, we deserve what we're getting. So by his own testimony, he lived a life so debauched and so immoral, so criminal, he deserved capital punishment. And he utters a few feeble words of faith to a dying Messiah. And Jesus says, today with me in paradise. Be careful about giving up praying for anyone. Then there's David, an adulterer and a murderer. When he repented, he was restored. All, certainly there was serious consequences flowing from his sins for him and for his family. Romans 6.23. All sin leads to death, generally speaking. So John is not telling anyone not to pray for someone. He's just saying, I'll leave it up to you who you pray for. John's emphasis here is on intercession, not on the exceptions to intercession. Intercession. Definition. Here's a long one. A pleading on behalf of someone in difficulty or in trouble. When you intercede, you're acting as an advocate or a go-between or a mediator to try to help someone or deliver someone from a mess that they're in or reconcile someone to another person, in this case, God. John has been commanding us throughout this letter. Hear this. John has been commanding us throughout this letter to express love to each other. He hasn't given us a lot of tips on how to do that like James does. But one of the ways we can do this is clearly 
through intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer requires effort on our part, discipline. It requires emotional energy. Intercession is a demonstration to God of our love for our brothers and sisters. That's one of the things it is. Jesus also commanded and modeled intercessory prayer or intercessory love, if you want to put it that way, while he was on earth. And he's still doing it for us now. Some biblical references. Turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. We were talking about Simon Peter. So I'll use Jesus' prayer for him as an example of Jesus just praying for someone who's about to be in a sin pattern. It's Simon. He says this. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And he's going to, and Simon's going to blow it. But I have prayed for you, Simon, after you morally fail is what he's saying, and he will morally fail big time, that your faith may not fail, that you won't totally give up on God, in other words. And when you have turned back, when you've repented, strengthen your brother's. That's clearly an example of Jesus praying. He said he was praying for Simon Peter. Then my favorite Old Testament book, Job 16, 19 through 21, that picture of Job outside of town sitting on the garbage dump, covered in boils and sores, hating life, wanting some kind of justice other than what he's receiving. Three friends, prosperity theologians, telling us all his fault. His wife told him to curse God and die. She's gone. His kids are all dead. His money's gone. His influence is gone. And he cries out this. How in the world does he know this? I have no idea. 15 to 20 centuries before Jesus will ever set foot on the earth. Even now, he says, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. What did Jesus say the last night of his life? John 15, verses 14 and 15 to his disciples. I no longer call you my pupils or my disciples or my servants. I call you my friend. It's okay to sign your emails, a friend of Jesus. Job was, and he knew it. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friends. That's a picture, folks, of Jesus as our intercessor written a long time ago. Romans 8, 34. This is in Romans, it's in Hebrews, this picture. I picked the one in Romans. Paul says this. He says that Jesus, first of all, is our judge, the one who will condemn or acquit us. And he says, remember this about Jesus. He's the one who died. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life. And is now, and he sees him there visually, at the right hand of God, interceding for us, for you and I. Paul knew the power of intercession. That's why he routinely asked people to pray for him. A couple of examples. I don't have time to go there. You can check them out later. Ephesians six nineteen. 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. When Paul said, pray for me, he wasn't just, that wasn't some religious piety. He knew that there was power, that things would go differently if people prayed for him. 
as we'll see in two weeks when we close out 1 John, the verses that immediately follow this section today to talk about another power. Not the power of prayer, the power of Jesus, but the power of the evil one. There is a sense in which intercession for someone is what I would call a spiritual throwdown. With the enemy of God, it is spiritual warfare. There's lots of examples in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, several in the New Testament, of spiritual throwdowns. Sometimes they're power encounters with demonic forces. Sometimes they're power encounters with people. Sometimes they're mixed. Let me give you one cool one. There's a bunch of them in the Old Testament. This is one. Exodus 7, 8 through 12. You can turn there if you want. I'm not going to have it on the screen for you. You know the story. God called Moses on the backside of nowhere as an 80-year-old man to go back into uh, Egypt and deliver his people from slavery. And one of the signs that he gave Moses that he was called, he said, throw down your rod or your staff, your big stick he was carrying, and it'll become a snake. That was out there in the wilderness. And so when he gets in front of Pharaoh, he says, well, I got one trick, I remember. <laughs> That's a loose paraphrase. And, uh, and he says, when Pharaoh says, how do I know you've got any spiritual power? You know, it's this throwdown situation going on with him and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians. He said, okay. So he throws down his rod and he becomes a snake. And they go over in the corner. Remember, there's power on the other side of this thing. Real spiritual power. There is a real devil. There are real demons. And they have real power. And Pharaoh's magicians duplicate it. And they throw down their staffs, their sticks. And they become snakes. The only difference is Moses' snake and their snake is Moses' snake eats their snakes. Now, that's a spiritual throwdown. I want to use that as a metaphor in a minute. That's why I told it. The ultimate spiritual throwdown in the New Testament is Jesus, our intercessor and our mediator, in a unique kind of spiritual throwdown, defeating Satan by dying on a cross as a sacrifice of himself according to ancient laws written by himself and his daddy before the dawn of time, which required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of Adam and Eve's race. While he's praying, interceding for his persecutors, saying, Father, forgive them. Persistent intercessory prayer by us is in a sense, again, a God-sanctioned spiritual throwdown with forces of evil that are blinding and binding the person we're praying for. And the prayer of faith, going back to the Moses story, is a big spiritual stick. I've got a practical tip for you now. I don't know how you pray. I hope it's not all spontaneous. I'm a spontaneous guy too. But there needs to be habits and disciplines through your prayer life. So I just have a practical suggestion. Use a prayer journal. Become a list maker if you're not one. And have an ask page in your prayer book. Here's a picture of, let's go to the next slide, of a page you can't read it. Don't look for your name up there. There's, there's lists of significant sinners up there. I can name some of you there right now I'm looking at that are on the list. And, and, and then I'm praying about my own needs and all that. It's an ask page. I would encourage you to develop habits and disciplines and use that book daily or several times a week and call out to God for years and years and years, and don't give up for your friends, for your kids, for your family members. 
Well, where am I? We're at the point that you're going to like a lot better than me preaching. Real life case examples of people in this congregation doing that. Kathy Tippett, come on up here, please. You most of you know, you know Kathy. She's the wife of Bruce Tippett. She's the key administrative person for Global Outfitters. And she's got a story about praying for years for her brother, John. How, how many years did you pray for him? Uh, from the time I became a believer, it was about 17 years before he came to Christ. Okay. That, that, you'll hear that in a minute. That's night. Well, I don't know the exact date. He passed away in 1991. More on that in just a minute. Your older brother, John, five years old, and he started rebelling at an early age, struggled in almost every way for most of his adult life. You prayed for him faithfully all those years. So tell us about what that looked like. Uh, well, growing up, you know, he was my big brother, so um, I really looked up to him and loved him. And when he started rebelling, our home became... Um, a place that was full of tension, especially between my dad and my brother. And so I kind of took on the role of the good child because uh, I didn't want to add to the chaos of the family. So, But then as a junior in high school, I came to Christ and saw that my goodness didn't mean anything and that I needed rescuing. And so I started praying for the rest of my family at that time. And... Um, for some reason, the parable of the prodigal son really spoke to me and not only how to pray for my brother, but also that I needed to repent of my pride and my self-righteousness. So I started praying some things out of that parable for my brother that he would come to a point of desperation and that he would come to his senses. When did that turnaround start in his life? Well, it was a process, like I said, about 17 years. But um, the first sign that I saw was um, I'd started praying that God would interrupt my brother's life and get his attention. And um, so he was driving home one night and went off the highway, flipped his car several times, and he came out of that with just a broken ankle. So I went to see him in the hospital. And when I walked in the room, he said, well, God's gotten my attention. So we talked a little bit then, uh, but he was still struggling uh, with some addiction and some mental illness. So the biggest turnaround came a couple of years later. Um, it was Thanksgiving, and he didn't show up for the family Thanksgiving. And so my dad and my brother um, and my husband, Bruce, went to his apartment to see if they could find him. And they found a lot of evidence in his apartment that he was in bad shape and really in need of help. And so my parents called everyone they knew, all his friends, anyone they thought might have had contact with him, and we had no word. And eventually they put out an APB for him in the state of Arkansas and uh, didn't find him. So we just prayed and didn't know where he was or if he was even alive. But um, we didn't hear from him until Christmas Day. So um, that Christmas morning, um, my parents were at our house with our two little girls, and we were getting ready to have Christmas, and the phone rang, and it was John. And uh, so it was so much like the parable of the lost son because my parents just ran and threw everything in the car and drove to Little Rock to meet him there. And um, at that point, he was finally to the end of himself. He had no strength left, and he knew he needed help. How did he finally come to faith? Uh, he stayed with my parents after that for a while to get healthy and to get help. And so 
Uh, they got him in with a really good Christian counselor uh, that was a life changer for him. And he was diagnosed then correctly uh, with bipolar and was put on medication. And he started going to a little church close to my parents' house. And a lady there just kind of took an interest in him, and she gave him a Bible. And uh, we still have it, and where he has his notes in there where he came to faith. Wow, so. that's awesome. So, oh, uh, after he came to faith mm-hmm. in Jesus what was he like until he passed away? I uh, just had such peace, and, and, and he became more like the brother I'd known, the younger brother, when he was um, just laughed and enjoyed life. And um, he had a job that he really felt fulfilled in and uh, worked for DHS and felt like he was helping people. And for the first time, he had a, a really loving, supportive uh, woman in his life uh, who cared for him, and, and he reconciled with my parents. All right. I'm going to ask, you told me when I interviewed you on Tuesday that mm-hmm. God specifically answered five very specific prayers for your brother, and I made some notes. So I'm going to read back those five things you told me, and then I'll let you comment on any you want to. You, you said that it's already that God would get his attention. That's mm-hmm. one of the things you prayed for. That was the car wreck. Right. Yeah. Okay. That he would come to faith in Jesus. He did mm-hmm. through a process. That he would be delivered from alcohol and drug addiction. He was. He was. Mm-hmm. That he would get a good Christian counselor and get help. Mm-hmm. And he did. And he God did. answered every one of those prayers. Mm-hmm. Not immediately. 17 right. years of praying. Mm-hmm. And you also prayed that he would become the apple of your daddy's eye. Tell us about that. Well, I think that was part of God's work in my heart. That I had become prideful in the fact that I was the child who never rebelled. And... Um, I had a lot of favor with my parents, and um, as Bruce says, my dad was my biggest fan. He he really kind of believed I could do anything, and um, was so good good and kind to me. And I wanted my brother to have that experience, so I just prayed for God to let him become that special person, that apple of my dad's eye. So um, one day, I was my dad was going through cancer treatments, and um, so I drove to Little Rock to be the good kid, to show up and take care of my dad. And so we were sitting there talking, and I must have just been talking his ear off and making him a nervous wreck because at one point he said, you know, I really like it when John comes over. He just sits here and watches football with me, and if we want to talk, we talk, and if we don't want to talk, we don't talk. And all of a sudden I realized... God had made my brother the apple of my dad's eye. (laughs) And he had just made him a person that brought joy into our home. And yesterday was an anniversary. Yesterday was the anniversary of my brother's death. Uh, He died in 91, so that's 27 years ago. He's been with Jesus for 27 years. All right, let's give this gal a hand. Thank you, Kathy. Derek, why don't you and Sherry come on up. This is Derek Rosal and his mother, Sherry. And they're going to share with you about her prayers for Derek. And Derek's going to start. But he moved back here recently, took a job at Tyson's. Uh, he'd lived here during his high school years, was raised in Louisiana most of his life. He moved away to go to the college in the Northeast and to work. And I'm going to tell his story by asking some long questions so you can get the background that he'll respond Derek, you were raised in a good Christian home in Louisiana until after the ninth grade. 
then moved to Springdale, Arkansas. You went to a Christian school some of those years in Louisiana and went to church regularly until about the 11th grade. You even worked at a Christian camp. What made you drop out of church? Well, uh, I, I always loved being a good kid. I wanted to have a good reputation and a good relationship with my parents, and um, that was something that was important to me, but it wasn't for the right reasons. I didn't have a transformed heart or mind. Um, and I remember when I went to college, uh, a friend reached out to me, Jordan, which we're, we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but he um, he reached out to me. I told him, I, you know, I'm living a, living a Christian-esque lifestyle. I'm living a, a good lifestyle, but I didn't really care uh, about God or love God. Okay. You went off to college in Richmond, Virginia, and pretty much completely ditched your faith there and thought of yourself as, you said, you, you, your goal was to become a very moral agnostic, which I thought was interesting. Strangely enough, and I'm, I'm going to read a rather long sentence. I apologize for, for trying to stay with me. This, this is interesting. It was at a secular college philosophy class that you started kind of an intellectual turnaround that caused you to lose your faith, not in God. You'd already lost that. You started to lose faith in this concept of moral relativism. And you began to realize that absolute morality was true, which logically puts you on an intellectual trajectory that will lead back to a belief in God. But it was only after you graduated and was working, had a relational breakup, a personal crisis with your girlfriend, and you had a spiritual epiphany that started, I think, in the shower, that you started really moving hard back toward God and the Christian faith. So tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, God had been preparing me for months, and the philosophy class was part of that. Um, but on top of that, I'd realized that um, all my plans hadn't, hadn't come to fruition. Um, I had career plans and relationship plans. I had friends and um, all that kind of came crashing down, and I had come to the realization over the last few months that it was my fault, that it was my actions, and, and I was living out of, um, out of sync with what I said I believed. I said I believed one thing, but then I did other things, and, and I had no real foundation. Uh, so I, I came to realization that I needed a foundation that lasted, and when I start, started to, the epiphany was uh, when I started to realize that it was the, the Christians in my life that had been the people that actually had foundations. Okay. So that started you on a serious journey back toward God and Jesus. You started to read Christian books by Christian writers. Some of them you got on your own. Some of them your friend Jordan recommended. C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, and J.P. Morton were three of the authors. Did you ever get the sense, though, that people were praying for you? Did anybody tell you they were? And how did that make you feel? I did, and I don't think at the time that I would have even realized what it meant. I don't think it was a, a, a thing that impacted me in the moment because I didn't even know what prayer was um, or really understand it. Um, but I knew that my mom was praying for me. Um, she told me that she was. And ultimately now I can see that that prayer that she had as well as my friend Jordan, his prayers were, were really what um, I believe made the difference. So other than prayers, how did your friend Jordan engage you intellectually and spiritually? I think your mom called him when you were in college and said, help. She's going to tell that in just a few minutes. And from that point on, he started to not only pray more intensely, but he started to act. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the things that he did to engage you spiritually? Yeah, so Jordan engaged me on a lot of different levels. Um, one of the big ones was intellectually. I just had a lot of questions, and I've been raised in the church. I probably had a pretty good background and had a lot of scripture that was still back there in my head, but the, the 
beliefs that I'd formed over the years of being away from the church and, and in the years of being an agnostic um, needed to be dealt with. And so I talked to him about what those beliefs were and, and where my struggles were. And he recommended books really specifically uh, to, to help me um, get a good foundation of faith and, and to overcome all those obstacles. Uh, but he also engaged me just personally and from a friend. He, he had a vacation planned with his wife and uh, they didn't take a lot of vacations. They, were, um, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, but he let me crash the vacation with his wife the end of that month um, in Tennessee and um, just poured into wow. me through that. When did you cross the line and become a Jesus follower? It's, it's really hard to say. Uh, I don't know the exact moment, but I know at that moment with that spiritual epiphany that everything changed for me. I think I listened to 10 sermons that weekend and started reading these books, and it was like book after book after book. And, and there was just a new understanding that I had. Um, so there was the spirit there with me that was, was interceding for me and opening my eyes, and everything was just different, completely different. Where's Jordan now? Um, so Jordan died um, a year ago yesterday, which was a kind of a crazy coincidence we didn't realize until first service. Um, but he, he died of cancer. Um, and, uh, How old was he? He was uh, probably 20, 29. And, um, yeah, I wasn't the only person that he, that he did this for. Um, yeah. he, he touched a lot of people with his short time on earth. Okay. You married a godly young woman. God's blessed you. Where is she? Raise your hand, Lord. Hey, and uh, they were in my discovery class. That's how I first heard about this story. So how did that all happen? Yeah, God is so good. Um, I started looking for churches at, at the time when, when this all happened and eventually uh, started going to a church that her dad pastors. Um, she wasn't going there at the time. She was away at a different state, and uh, I was discipled by him, and, and uh, he was a big part of my uh, development and discipleship. And um, he liked me. And uh, when she moved back, he uh, kind of pushed the two of us together. So you got Jesus, you got church, and you got the girl, too. Right? Yeah, it's pretty good deal. perfect love story. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read back a quote from you that you shared with me. It's profound. And I want to ask you, do you really believe it? When someone is beyond your physical reach, you said, you can still reach across the divide through the supernatural power of prayer. Is that what happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was living in a, a tiny, tiny town where I probably talked to 10 people a week, and there was not a, major, there was not a Christian in my life that was going to evangelize me, uh, that could evangelize me at the level that I needed them to evangelize me. I, I didn't have contact with Jordan anymore. I hadn't talked to him since years ago, and when we did talk, it was, it was him trying to reach out, me kind of pushing him away, and um, there, was, there wasn't going to be um, a person that showed up, I don't think. It would have been a, a crazy miracle if there was, but God worked through those prayers and took the scales off my eyes and immediately just I could see um, and it was a it was a immediate thing um, and it, it happened I believe through the prayer okay this is Sherry and I'm going to ask her a few questions Sherry you're married to Ken Ken wave at us over there we're doing family shout outs today and uh, they have two adult children we're talking about the one that's standing on the stage so you did your best Sherry to raise your son in a Christian home. You thought he got it spiritually, but apparently he fooled you. When did, what did you do when you saw him drifting further and further away from Jesus? Well, I'm going to read what I have to you say. You did great first, sir, so keep reading. <laughs> um, during Derek's senior year of high school, it concerned me that he was full of questions of his beliefs, the Bible, and Christianity, and my answers would not satisfy him, nor would he take my advice and go and talk to the church leaders. I continued to pray for him as I had all his life in a general way, not realizing in the beginning he was falling away from God and not just 
trying to understand more about God because he was always a learner that way. But during his college years, he became, it became apparent to me that all these questions were not just from wanting to learn, but from his unbelief. Okay, so what, when, when did you start to engage God, let's say, really intensely in intercessory prayer for your son, and how did you pray? Well, after he graduated in 2015 and moved to Maryland, whenever he would call, he sounded like he had lost all hope and meaning of life. He brought me to a total devastation on, the, on July 4th weekend when he called and told me he didn't believe there was a God at all. I fervently prayed and sobbed and called out to God, praising the floor, and the Dan floor just wearing it out, begging him to show God, himself to, to Derek and to remove the scales from his eyes and so that he could see. So you eventually reached out to his friend Jordan in desperation for help. And, and what tell us about that? I believe God had a hand in that in bringing Jordan to my mind because he had been a Christian mentor and a friend to Derek in his early teens, but they hadn't seen each other in years. And um, they were, it was in Louisiana. We were uh, now in Arkansas and, uh, and um, Jordan was just a little older than Derek and was now attending seminary and pastoring a small church. So I thought he might could answer some of Derek's questions and could help him understand. So what, are your thoughts now that your son has so fully embraced Jesus? I couldn't be more joyful. He was dead and now he's alive and walking daily in a relationship with Christ. He started with a great hunger for God's word and he finally began to understand what he was reading. He would be so excited he would call and tell me all the time what he was learning. He lost some of his friends because of his new faith, but that didn't let he didn't let that sway him. He has since mentored and discipled and witnessed to others and even to me. And now he prays for the salvation of, of his lost friends himself. Okay. Any advice for the rest of us who are still praying for wayward friends and family members? When the Holy Spirit urges you to pray for the lost, do so immediately. And ask the Holy Spirit to place God, godly people and things in their lives daily that shows them his love and the truth and to remove the scales from their eyes so that they can see. Pray that they will repent and turn to God. Do not condemn or judge them, but love them. No matter how hopeless it may seem to you in your physical eyes, there is always hope. Amen. Don't listen to the lies of Satan that it's, a, it's futile to pray. He doesn't like our prayers. He hates them. Yes. Satan knows there is power in our prayers. And he will seek to discourage you and distract you. And he wants you to grow weary and stop praying for them. But never give up praying for their salvation because it is the most important prayer you can pray for someone that is dead in their sins. Amen. Let's give him a hand. Thank you all. God bless you. Thank you. Last story, and I'm closing. This is it. I got one more, though. I think I've told it before, but it's good enough to retell. It's been about three years. I have a friend named Greg that I've known since junior high school. He's also a friend of John Lawrence, one of your elders. John and I have known each other, too, since junior high school. 
Uh, Greg wasn't raised in church. He had very little exposure to the historical accounts of the life of Jesus or any of his teachings. By the time he was in his mid-20s, he was a functioning alcoholic. I have permission to say all this this morning. I called him again this week. And he was using street drugs. His first marriage ended in divorce. He married his second wife, Pam, in his late 20s. And for the first time in Greg's life, Pam either became a Christian right after they were married or right before. I didn't get that straight. I don't know for sure. But she was a serious Christian all their married life. He was living now in a home with someone who knew Jesus. And he lived it out. So for the last 35 to 40 years, this woman has prayed faithfully for her husband and tried to walk in obedience to Christ. She was and still is a faithful member of her local Assembly of God church in North Little Rock. And for the last 10 to 15 years, she's been a leader in her Celebrate Recovery. Greg, meanwhile, continued to work, to drink, and to do drugs. He professed Christ even at one point, but it wasn't real. A few times he sobered up. One period was for more than a year. But he always fell back into destructive lifestyle patterns. By the time he was in his late 40s, his liver was shot. But he had the self-discipline to live a clean and sober lifestyle for over a year. You have to do that to get on the transplant list, and he did. He had an amazingly successful liver transplant with almost no complications or rejection by his body. He stayed clean and sober for several years, but slowly slipped back into old sin patterns. After his fourth DWI just a few years ago, the judge gave him the option of prison or an 18-month Christian rehab program called Teen Challenge. Greg opted for rehab. So in his early 60s, this hardened old sinner spent the next year of his life doing physical labor, reading a Bible, worshiping God, and being exposed to life-changing truths every day while he was there for over a year. It changed his life. He really got Jesus this time. And for the last two years, he said except for two slip-ups for just a few days, he has lived a Christian lifestyle. Attending church, celebrate recovery, loving his family, reading the word, praying to God. The God that heard the prayers of his wife and some of his friends and family members who had prayed for him for three to four decades and who had delivered him from the chains of addiction and darkness. All through high school, I prayed for Greg. And ever since I returned to Jesus after my own four-year hiatus with the devil in college, I've prayed for Greg. Even though I've had very little contact with him the last 40 years, but our prayers matter. As John shared with us, our faithful and persistent prayers are expressions of love for our brothers and sisters. And when we pray prayers of intercession and faith, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. God graciously allowed me to supernaturally see the fruit of my labors in prayer about three years ago. I had heard that Greg had gone to a rehab facility, but I couldn't find any information about where he was or what his cell phone number or his email or even his wife. Despite my reasonable efforts, I couldn't find Greg. So I did something I know how to do. I prayed that I'd find Greg, and I started praying. One day I was mediating a civil dispute involving two companies, and there were several people and lawyers involved. At some point in the mediation, I got stuck in a room for about 15 minutes with one lawyer and his client named Joe. While the other side was considering a settlement proposal that I'd made, I knew I had time to kill, so we just started chit-chatting. I started talking to Joe about where we lived. He was about eight or nine years older than me, where he was from, and about his life. And he started telling me he played football for the Razorbacks. He played fullback in the 60s. He was from North Little Rock, my hometown. 
light bulbs started to come on. The more he talked, the more I realized who he was. And I said, what's your last name? He said, I'm Joe Smelser. And I said, your brother's Greg Smelser, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And I said, and then I broke professional protocol totally. And I said, I've been praying for your brother for 40 years. And he said, are you Jim Hall? The guy I've heard all these crazy stories about. And you got this friend named John Lawrence. And, and yeah, and we had a little, you know, I had to explain some things. But anyway, <laughs> why I was praying based on those stories. But Joe told me exactly where his brother was. You can call that a coincidence if you want. That ain't no coincidence. And he's proceeded to tell me exactly the place, the location, how to get a hold of him. He happened to be in a Teen Challenge facility in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I, by another coincidence, happened to be going there two days later for a professional meeting. And I called down there. And they weren't going to let me in to sing. So I played my preacher card. And it worked. And I got in. And I shared with Greg the story about those coincidences. And how God loved him. And how people like me had been praying for him for 40 years. And he knew it. And we shared Jesus together that facility so what's the point of all these stories pray pray for those around you caught in destructive life patterns and don't give up praying I don't understand how all this works but after 66 and 3 quarters years of life on the planet I know that prayers make a difference when we engage God they're powerful and they're effective They're capable of breaking chains and tearing down strongholds and opening blind eyes and freeing captives. And develop habits and disciplines in your life of intercessory prayer. Wage a spiritual war of attrition on the strongholds of evil in the lives of your friends and your family. You never know what God will do for the Gregs, for the Derricks, and for the Johns in your life. You may be sitting here today because someone prayed for you and didn't give up. Prayer is available around the room. If the prayer team would scatter out now and go to places where that that you could go to them to be prayed for. Communion is available. We take it each week as the early church did to remember his death until he comes. If you want to be baptized as Christ commanded and model, we can do that during this time. But right now, let's stand and engage our great God in worship.